Yeah, I'm a big fan of the examined life. I think a life unexamined is a life asleep. I think when you don't think about the ways you use food, the ways you drink wine, the ways you um, have sex, you know, with your spouse, even uh, the ways or you uh, study uh, the scriptures, even the ways you read books and use books, the ways you shop, when you don't examine those things, when you just um, allow them to be a potential for distraction and a potential painkiller, I think that is being asleep. Seth Haynes is my friend and the author of the brand new book called The Book of Waking Up, Experiencing the Divine Love That Reorders a Life. Seth talks about and explores in great depth uh, the process of a life of sobriety, uh, a life of waking up to what's real, a life of attaching to the love of God instead of all the different things that we use to attach, uh, to numb our pain and all that stuff. Uh, I love this book and I love Seth. And this conversation that we had could have gone on for three hours. It was that, to me, that beautiful. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. I think you will. And then really go out and buy Seth's book. Again, it's called The Book of Waking Up. It's experiencing the divine love that reorders a life. Enjoy the conversation. Okay, Seth. So um, there's so many questions I really do have about your beautiful book, The Book of Waking Up, which, um, as I told you, I I'm going to start sort of working through with a couple different people and I'm excited about that. But I know you've been on a couple times, but it's been a couple of years since you've been on the podcast. Yeah. So just, you know, just in terms of background, can you, can you tell us the story of what started you on the journey of thinking about addiction and freedom and waking up? I'm talking about yeah. your, some of your coming clean stuff, but anything else you want to share? Yeah, so um, my my oldest son, who's now eight years old, um, in just before he turned one, he was very very sick. In fact, we were uh, flown and uh, he was flown and taken down to a ho children's hospital in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, and we spent a skinny minute there with him, maybe three weeks. I can't remember exactly how long now, whether it was two weeks or four weeks. So I always just say three. Um, but in that space, we really thought we were going to lose him. In fact, the doctors thought that we were going to lose him. And there was a day when the doctor came in and said, well, we're really out of options. We don't know what to do. Um, we're just going to make him comfortable. Hmm. And it was at that moment uh, when I just decided that the pain of all of that was way too much, that I had no idea where God was in all of it. You know, people say things like, you know, God's in all things. God's in the pain. Um, I had no ears for that. I had no idea what people meant. Um, and so I just decided I didn't want to feel anymore. I didn't want to think anymore. And as a result, I called uh, uh, someone and said, hey, bring me a bottle of gin, smuggle it into the hospital. Um, she did. And I decided right then and there that I was just going to drink the pain away. And I did that for about a year. Mm -hmm. um, all that story is, you know, I've shared it here before uh, in our last podcast interview, like you said, years ago. I'm glad to be back, by the way. Yeah, I love it. Uh, and, I, and I wrote about it in Coming Clean, my first book. 
But, you know, when I finally recognized that I had a drinking problem, which was about a year after that hospital uh, visit, when I finally realized that, you know, for years I had been drinking too much and for one year in particular, I had given myself to the bottle, I decided um, that I needed something different for my life. I needed something that looked like a real sobriety. And so I, I did that. I set off, I put down the bottle and I set off on a journey of sobriety. And over the last really probably six years, five to six years, um, I've just continued to do research and to ask the question of what makes someone sober. Um, and in that process of asking that question, I fell uh, into uh, all these ancient sort of tools and some really good modern secular writers um, also who, who talk about sobriety and help us reframe it in ways that are maybe more helpful than uh, just the ways we classically talk about it in terms of to drink or not to drink right. um, or to sex or not to sex or to shoot up or not to shoot up. Uh, there's a wealth of material out there that helps us think about it differently. And, and in my own experience, I found it to be much, much more helpful. Yeah. And this, oh gosh, I, I, I want to ask actually an, an immediate follow-up question to that, because I think um, when we think about sobriety, uh, I don't even know that we have a good definition for, for what that is, or at least the shared definition. What's, what's your current definition of what sobriety means for you? To me, sobriety means being so attached to the divine love of God that we only use things, the created stuff of earth, anything, yeah. to the extent that it helps us love, serve, and reverence the divine love of God. We only use the world around us to draw deeper into attachment with Him. And that may sound familiar to some of your uh, readers, and it's because I didn't create that idea or that definition. That's It's a Jesuit concept. It's an Ignatian concept. It's something that St. Uh, Ignatius of Loyola taught. Um, and, and it's something that unfortunately in my evangelical upbringing was really kind of uh, never discussed because we, we'd thrown out so much of the wealth and the treasury of wisdom, uh, you know, pre-Reformation or right around the Reformation with, with the, with the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. Um, so, so my, my working definition right now of, of sobriety really revolves more around having your attachments in the right order, about using things only to the extent that they really draw us deeper into the divine love of God. That, that I love that. It occurs to me then that there would have to be some sort of a, I don't know, discerning process where you could say, okay, here's this, here's this drink, here's this whatever, here's this job, here's this thing that I could slip over into using it for different reasons to numb out. Um, but also here's this thing that could be a gift. How do you begin to walk into that kind of a process? And, and I assume that's a lead into really of waking up and what the book is about, but like, how, how have you started that journey of discerning? Yeah, man, I love what you said about how it can be an addiction or a gift. A thing can be an addiction or a gift. And you kind of naturally went to work, uh, which I mean, if you have a coping mechanism or a numbing agent, what is it? What is it for you? Yeah. Oh, for me. Is it, it, yeah. Uh, are you asking me? 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I have two big ones and it's work for sure. I mean, three in the Enneagram. And I think that's so easy just to hide behind it because I'm providing for my family and doing meaningful work for the world. That's, you know, quote unquote, for God. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. Um, alcohol still is one for me too, that it's hard yeah. for me not to go to that. And I think it's connected, you know, because I think I, I focus, I work really, I think, I think in my mind hard and yeah. I need, I feel like I need to shut my brain off, you know? And so, um, if I have a couple of bourbons that night, that usually does the trick. You know, yeah, uh, totally. And, until it doesn't, you know, of course. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Though, I mean, those are my two big ones. Yeah, well, let's go with that because I think work is a great example. So, so what does work do for you? Wow. I mean, I think my particular fields of work, which is primarily writing, speaking, counseling people, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. At the end of the day, it allows me to feel uh, a sense of real importance like people admire mm. me you know what i mean like mm. i i've done work on this and i i think um this thing of like am i controlled by whether or not people like me I, I don't know that i care that much about whether people like me i want people to admire me <laughs> you know mm. and so mm. my particular line of work puts me in front of people uh and allows me to play uh doing things i enjoy doing of course right mm. but also, gosh, the, the hook is like, if I can get that feeling where someone's impressed by something I've done mm. or someone's, you know, um, uh, then that's a hit. That's like a dopamine hit for sure. Yeah. It makes you feel like you're enough. Yeah. Yeah. For a, for a second, you know? Yeah. For a second. And so what, what happens? You do more, right? You do more and you do more and you do more hope, hoping that it, it's, it's enough. I think, so I think number one, it, it's just realizing like, what are some of the things, um, that we're prone to ad be addicted to? Yeah. So, so to use your work analogy, um, this is a thing that you're prone to attach to. And by the way, guess what? I'm raising my hand over here in Arkansas. Like this is <laughs> yeah. my thing too. And particularly with creativity, I have some other attachments that we can certainly talk about <laughs> later too. Um, but, but that's the thing that could be, um, the, the, one of the primary addictions that it could, actually you could chase approval so much because you want to be told, you know, you're enough, you're good. You're, mm -hmm. we love you. You know, yeah. you could chase it so much that you actually end up not chasing the approval of God. Right. Like, Oh yeah. That, that, yeah. I mean, that's a thing, right? That's what we all do. So, so there's an underlying pain point. Am I enough? you know, maybe we would call that scarcity. Maybe you would call that loss, but am I enough? Is there enough work seems to produce something along those lines that then says, you know, the people say I'm enough when they hear my podcast or my sermon or whatever. And so there's a prone, you know, you're prone to be addicted to that. But then here's the second thing that you raised that I think was so good. Let's talk about the counter. Yeah. What is the, what is the gift in work? Yeah. And, and see, it's really, actually, it's harder to, to talk about that. Like, can I, can I be honest about, you know, the gift, but, but I do think, um, I am wired up to be creative. I am mm -hmm. wired up to actually specifically help people navigate faith shifts, you know? Yeah. And I, I think I, when I can collaborate with someone honestly, and listen and then 
sort of provide just a real easy framework for, hey, you're not crazy. Um, this is actually what faith is. Um, there's a joy that can happen between us that does really feel like a gift. Um, yeah. and it, 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 it's, and it's a gift for me too. Um, and I think it, it does transcend, you know, there is some ego in there and stuff too, but, mm -hmm. but I also mm -hmm. know what it feels like when it's not just ego, when it's like, no, we just created a pathway forward together and that feels magical. It feels, um, yeah divine it feels it feels fulfilling um so i think that's part of the gift too well let's stop there and let's let's talk about that like what is the pathway forward like when you pave that pathway forward for people where are you pulling them where are you bringing them where are you paving the pathway to i mean i can answer this for you but yeah because well, i've seen you do it so many times gosh <laughs> no i'd be interested in hearing your hearing your answer but i think i probably should do the work of trying to do it myself um so it, especially in terms of faith, religious systems are wired up to keep people within a certain boundary. That's just, that's just what they do. And it's not yeah. even that bad, right? It can be yeah. bad. Yeah. Yeah. But when someone actually does the natural movement of growing in their faith and wanting to learn more about God, and that usually only comes through great pain or great suffering, great suffering or great yeah. love, right? and some disruption happens and they get an invitation into something else, the, the, the resistance is so strong because you're probably gonna get rejected from your system in, in, in some way. You're gonna experience imbalance yourself, which isn't comfortable. Um, so when I can like put a plank down in between the ship of their current crisis and the shore of like, um, some new ground on which to stand, people feel less crazy, people feel more connected to God again, because they feel like they've done something wrong. And I can alleviate, you know, it's like, no, actually mm -hmm. you're, you've just graduated and, and you'll do mm -hmm. it again. You'll need to leave this, you know? So I think what I'm doing there is helping, um, helping to solidify what, what the journey of faith actually is, which is, you know, breaking your box from what you've believed, which really was only a construction anyway, and creating something bigger with which to, you can understand God. And that's only a construction and, and that'll be destroyed later, which doesn't mean God isn't knowable. It just means that as Richard Rohr says, I love what he says, that God is endlessly knowable, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm yeah, so what I love about that is the gift, your gift in particular, and I, I, I think you're a good example because uh, you're, you are a pastor, you're a writer, you're a creative, you're a, a, a spiritual counselor, so to speak. Not so to speak, you are. Um, the gift that you bring to the world in your work, the thing that you've admitted is prone to you know, be an addiction for you, is prone to be a way that you attach to try to feel loved or accepted yeah. or to cure some underlying pain point. When it's used right, you and others attach in a more deeper way to the divine love of God. Like you pull mm. people into the divine love of God. And so the gift of your work, the gold in your work is this idea that you can um, connect others with the divine love of God. You can work with others to find a richer, fuller version of the divine 
love. And that is actually the sacramental gift of work, hmm. that we partner with God to love, serve, and reverence Him, hmm. that we partner with God to create in the world so that people around us would love, serve, and reverence Him, that we partner with Him in, in making something new that expresses His divine love. And so the thing that could be your curse, right, work, yeah. uh, and it sometimes is your curse, yeah. is actually the greatest gift. And so when we get back to the real question of sobriety— the, the the question is, am I using whatever the thing is? You know, we talked about a little bit about uh, sex before we started rolling in sex robots. Um, but <laughs> yes. are we using are we using the the thing, whatever the thing is, in a way that helps us love, serve, and reverence God? That helps us recognize something about Him that pulls us into relationship with Him that is ordered under His divine love. Uh, under the divine love of the God self, or are we using it uh, in a way that, that it is the ends in and of itself? Mm-hmm. We use it to make ourselves feel better. We use it to kill the pain. We use it to numb something. And that is when uh, the, the created thing, the gift, becomes the curse. That's when it becomes the addiction. So true sobriety is really living in that way of ordered attachments where everything that we could possibly be attached to is ordered under the divine love of God. And we use it only so far as it helps us love, serve, and reverence Him. Oh, would you say, like like one of the, okay, jumping into your book for a second, although we this is exactly what we're talking about, but um, the first question that you cover, the first section is, what is the problem? Uh did you just explain what the problem is or is there more that you could add to that? Like the problem is that we use, we attach to things in a disordered way so that we use them for, to get the love that we maybe could get for free. How would you describe that? Yeah. Yeah. I think that is part of the problem. I think that the foundational problem is that we've defined addiction in wrong terms. Yes. I think the foundational problem is that when we look at addiction, we say that the definition of addiction is to be unhealthily uh, ruled and beaten down by you know, drugs or alcohol or sex or sometimes like a really aggressive therapist will throw gambling in there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And a super aggressive therapist might throw social media in there. Yeah. But otherwise, all these other things like the studies of the scripture – for instance, to use a really good thing, yeah. um, or work to use a good thing, or shopping to use a, a neutral to good thing. Like we 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 don't talk about those things in terms of addiction, and and maybe they're not actually addictions. Maybe they're behavioral disorders, or maybe there are other ways to use those in disordered ways. But but my my uh, the, the big problem to me is that I think that we proscribe, uh, we limit uh, the word addiction. Um, and we use it in ways that then sort of pull us out of having to wrestle with the fact that we might have a problem, right? Yeah. It's the it's the boozers that are the addicts. It's the heroin users who are the addicts, the meth users that are the addicts. It's the people who can't stop paying for prostitutes who are the addicts. It's the people who can't not go to Vegas during the national championship game, it's the John who can't quit walking the street and paying for blowjobs. Mm-hmm. Those are the addicts. Yeah. But the truth is, 
That's such a limited definition of addiction that it is wholly unhelpful to so many of us who have working addictions, attachments, and disorders in our life. Well, I I remember about a year ago, you tweeted something and then you wrote about it further, I think, later. But even your, like, you just noticed that your nightly bowl of cereal was, was oh, an dude. attachment. Dude. And I, dude. I remember first going like, come on, dude. Like, but then as I followed your line of thinking, that's exactly it. Like, like anything can become an attachment and right. That, that, and, and so say, say more about, about how to name attachments in an addictions, whether they are or not in a way that sets you like, no, that's good news to name it that versus, Oh yeah. my gosh, you know, like, no, it's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is good. So, so the, the, with the funny thing in the backstory, and I don't think I've ever written about this or tweeted this, but the backstory about cereal is that it actually started in a movie. <laughs> so I was in a movie and I was, it was particularly tense situation. And we had this gigantic, large uh, bucket of popcorn. And I noticed that every time the intensity of the movie ratcheted up, so did my hand going into the popcorn oh, bowl. Yeah. Like when the stress hit, I was like, chowing down like crazy and then i would be like you know that everything would get placid and calm and then it would be cool and i would say okay i swear off the popcorn and then the intensity would ratchet back up and yeah. i would start munching on carbs again right it's like every time i swore it off but then when i got crazy bring on the fat and the carbs and it was later on that week that i realized that at the end of particularly stressful days i did the same thing i would come home with this idea that i'm not gonna you know eat cereal tonight because long term it's not good to have a bowl of cereal every night before bed it's not that it's a bad thing you know f- from time to time I- i'm still going to eat cereal at night i love it it's a comfort right but at the end of a particularly stressful day i was doing it every night and i almost felt entitled to it yeah and it struck me that um i was using this thing as a way to blow off some steam and to get a little bit of my childhood back to get Mm. a little bit of back at the end of the day like cereal to me represented this return to innocence this this time when like nothing was super stressful everything was you know texas mesquite trees and han solo and luke skywalker figures in the back you know what i mean yeah i wanted that back and so i kept turning it to, to cereal and and the truth is like even in that moment that i recognized it i i, I was struck by the fact that like, if i want an actual return to innocence maybe the path forward is not cereal maybe the path forward is god and and and, and just taking it to him in prayer taking the stress the pain to god in prayer and 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 listen even if I chose to still eat a bowl of cereal because I love cereal, right? This is great. I love it. Um, still saying and recognizing, okay, I am seeking a type of comfort. God, only you can give me that comfort. And so I'm going to come to you, maybe even while I'm eating this cereal, and ask for you to see me and to understand me and to feel the stress and to bring me comfort and to sort of relieve some of this tension and pain and tell me that I'm enough. Tell me that we're here together, you know? So again, it wasn't whether or not I was to eat or not eat cereal. That was kind of beside the point. The point was, what was I looking for from that cereal? And what was I looking for from the popcorn? You know, comfort. 
Um, and was I seeking comfort from God or was I just taking it to the created stuff of earth? It kind of sounds to me like um, a kind of mindfulness, right? And so, I mean, what you did in the movies there is you became aware of, oh, I'm not just eating popcorn. I'm eating popcorn when I feel anxious, you know? And then you took that to the cereal, like, okay, is cereal bad? Of course not. But why am I doing it? And then sort of the mindfulness, it seems like, is just pausing and saying, okay, what if I took this anxiousness, this stress to a different place, right? Um, Like I can do, I can do cereal. Okay. But I also can do something else about it. Um, And that's what it sounds like to me. It's like, and that's what sounds freeing to me. It's like, if you say, you can never do that again because it's awful. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be so drawn to that, right? But if it's kind of like you can do that, go for it. But that's just not your only choice. You actually have yeah. a different choice. And try this other thing for a while. Yeah, yeah. And I, so, so there are sometimes when I mean to be clear, and I, this is something that is as odd as it is that I have to say, I have to say it because I've actually been called out on it recently. But like there are some things that you just. Right. shouldn't do right you just can't do right? right like you can't um be shooting up or doing lines off a hooker's belly um and also taking your pain to god at the same time like it right. doesn't work that way right right to be as crass as i can right be. you suffer my crassness don't you i love it are you kidding me okay I'm, all right good i'm, I'm making so, a mark of like and at that minute mark he said you know lines on a hooker's belly i'm just gonna i'm gonna create like a I think like a, a, a jingle out of that. Oh, there to, you go. No, yeah. No, no, no. Tr- like, I love it. Yeah. I love so, it. But you can't do that stuff. You can't, you can't abuse, uh, women and use your power over and against women as a man. And then also be taking your pain to God. Right. Like that's not a thing that you can do. And right. so there are some things that you just don't do, even if they're prone to attachment, you just don't do them. You just don't do illicit drugs. You just don't abuse women. Um, you know, and you just, you, there's things, times you just can't starve yourself. Like there are things you just can't do, but then there are other things, these attachments that seem to be super neutral, like a bowl of cereal mm-hmm. or Hey, a, a glass of whiskey, a glass of bourbon. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're not an alcoholic, you know, a, a glass of bourbon may be okay at the end of the day. So long as you're saying, God, how does this glass of bourbon, how does this glass of wine, how does this bowl of cereal, how does sex with my wife, by the way, or sex with my husband, by the way, how does this become a moment where I can see the goodness of God in the land of the living, mm-hmm. where I can praise, honor, and, and, and reverence and love you more because of this gift that I'm participating in? And if I'm doing it to blow off steam, where I can first say, God, come into this place where I have steam mm-hmm. and really help me um, you know, find the peace that I need so that I can recognize and use the gift as a gift. Yes. And I think, I think that's where we need to get. And, and, you know, I, I think too, like some of us, there are some people who, because they've cultivated such a sick relationship with alcohol, like you just don't need to do it anymore. And that's okay. Like there's no goodness in a glass of bourbon anymore. Right. And that's okay. Right. That's okay. Um, but for all of the gifts, as we participate in them in in properly attached ways, I mean, th- that's the goal, that they would show us how to love, serve, and, and reverence God more. 
And I, I love that reframing again. Um, and thank you for sort of doing the PSA, the public service announcement that, hey, there are some things that, no, it's just that's, that's not going to be good. And I think um, coming to that place of realizing that is what hitting rock bottom is, of course. And, um, you know, and we can't usually we don't choose that. It chooses us and we something some train wreck almost happens or it does happen. And but then when it does, we, we, we do have this opportunity, I think, to wake up for real in a way that's not willpower. Right. You know, like I'm mm-hmm. just going to stop. Um, but we, but like you must have had a picture of divine love that emerged over time that was compelling enough for you to say, no, this is real, actually. Like this isn't just platitudes or, you know, the religious speak of get your, get your self-worth from God, which is, you know, like on one level so true, on another level can seem so empty. Mm-hmm. Um, so t- can you just bring us into a little bit of how that picture emerged that you found the divine love of God to be satisfying? Yeah. So there was a particular moment, you know, I, I, um, I went to a therapist. I did not enter AA. Uh, and, and there was a reason for that. The therapist said, you know, if, if in the state that you're in, in the state of faith that you're in, if you went to AA and you started looking for your higher power, you might never find him. So why don't we maybe not do that? Instead, why don't you come to me uh, for, a, you know, as long as it takes a few weeks. And then after we sort of get your feet under you, if you still think AA is a good idea, then you can make that move. And so that's what I did. And and he kind of helped me back on the road. He's a faith-based counselor. So he sort of helped me find my way back into faith using, honestly, some very secular tools and uh, good therapeutic practices and techniques and there was this moment when it was probably two months after we had, you know, I had stopped drinking altogether and Amber had to take Titus, my youngest son, to, um, to a hospital, to the Mayo Clinic. And she was on her way up there and I was home alone and I was praying and I heard nary a word from God. And it was probably, I don't know, day 70 or something of my journey, of my journey. And I was praying and I just said, God, you know, I've prayed so much over the last year and in change for Titus's healing and nothing has happened. And, um, I was frank about it, you know, I was pretty pissed about it. Um, but I said, I don't know why I'm praying again, but I'm going to ask you to show up and to heal Titus. And, uh, you know, I'm not a sort of uh, charismatic type of guy. I, you know, I, I'm very hesitant to talk about the, you know, things like audible voices or whatever. And it, and it wasn't that, but I did very clearly sense in my spirit, uh, an answer. And the answer was, no, I'm not going to heal him. Hmm. And then very quickly it was at least not how you think. Hmm. And then very quickly after that, it was, um, but Hey, at least we're talking. Hmm. And it was this moment of thinking like, Oh, I, I can hear no, I can hear um, this isn't going to go down the way you think it's going to go down. Things are different than you would want them to be, but I'm here with you and you can trust me. And I've never really had that experience again. It's, you know, it's not, 
I don't walk around in clouds and, and, you know, God doesn't send down golden beams of light and voices and those sorts of things to me. Mm, And so it was this very particular moment where I thought, oh, okay, you're calling me into something different, something slower, something quieter, something more meditative. Um, What does that look like? How does it look like to, to walk that out to say, even if you say no, at least we're talking at least you're Emmanuel, god with us and and he really did over time show that to be true yeah well i think that that led you i think and i don't know if i have my order right in terms of your own process but i remember at some point like the eucharist became such an important part of your practice was that before or after that experience that was after it was after that and so yeah, that's a really good transition too into like the, the the deeper, quieter work. It was it would have been six months because that story that I just told you, I actually wrote that out in Coming Clean. So that would have been in the first three months. Mm-hmm. Um, and then probably three or four months after that, I was gathering with some friends um, at Mike Rush's house. Mike Rush, who runs Pure Charity, by the way, which is an amazing organization. Um but I was at Mike's house, and there were a group of us, uh, John Ray, Mike Rush, some characters you might know, uh, Steve. Or and, characters and, I want to know desperately. I just need to find uh, a way to get down there. So Come on. Come I on know. down, man. I You'll know. love them. Um, but we, there was a group of us, and, and there was a, a pastor out of Portland who had come down, and his idea was to create this like pilgrimage down in northwest Arkansas for some of his college students. And we were talking about it. At the end of the night, there was this idea that – maybe we should all take communion. And so somebody uh, got the dregs of the wine because there was, you know, still a quarter of a bottle or so left. And John Ray picked up the bread and uh, Pat gave it to my wife, to Amber. And Amber started making her way around the room, you know, after the words of institution were said by John. And um, and about halfway uh, around the room, there was this collective, oh shit moment. You know, you could see it on everybody's face. Like, oh, Seth hasn't had a drink Mm. at all, and now we're passing around wine. What do we do? Mm -hmm. And so uh, Mike, who was to my left, I was the last person. Mike, who was to my left, uh, went and he got some white grape juice from his fridge. And I said, no, 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 man. If if my sobriety can't withstand, you know, the body and the blood with people that I love in community, then, like, what is my sobriety? Mm Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was something, you know, my, my, my grandmother who was in recovery until she passed, um, had often said very similar things and and it just stuck with me and, and it became really real in that moment. So when it, um, uh, came to me, I broke the bread, I dipped it in the wine and I uh, ate. And in that moment, I, I can't explain what happened. It was another one of those just very mystical moments where, Um, it, it, it tasted like a flesh, like actually like, you know, when you're a kid and you fell down and you scraped your, your elbow, um, or or you're riding your bike and you, you throw over the handlebars and you scrape your elbow or your, or your uh, wrist and you sort of suck on Mm -hmm. the wound wrist. Like that's what it tasted like. It was that visceral. Hmm. And I, I sort of broke down. And, and when we left, I, said to Amber, I don't know what just happened, but whatever that is, I got to figure it out. And so we set out to really figure that out. And, and, and 
long that that led me to uh, Alexander Schmemann's book for the life of the world um which led me into you know orthodox and catholic writers and i realized that like this was the the actual you know as the, as the catholic church calls it like this was the source and summit of life for the early church yeah it wasn't the sacred text um and i'm not saying that the letters weren't important right and i'm not saying that the texts weren't important after can, you know they were canonized but the the critical piece of the christian life was devotion to the body and blood of christ that's how it says it in Acts. Um, and and so for me, it became this moment of saying, like, I don't know what that was, but I want to be devoted to it. And so the last really five and a half years, I've struggled to understand what does it mean to be devoted to the Eucharist? What does it mean to be devo- devoted to the body and blood? What does it mean to let that infuse all of my spirituality and creativity? Um and, and it's just been a complete uh, shift in my paradigm, and it's been the, the very thing that's driven uh, my sobriety. Wow. Which is saying a lot, really. I mean, the, yeah. the, pra- the embodied practice of that sacrament, ushering you into communion with the divine in a way that leads you to devotion and experiencing divine love is beautiful. Um, and that's one of the things I love about the Eucharist is it's just so earthy and, and yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's bread and wine, it's body and blood. It's, yeah. um, yeah, yeah. you're going to say something. And this is, ex- and this is exactly like when Jesus is at the last table, he's not, it's no surprise to him that bread and wine is there. Yeah. It's also no surprise to him that bread and wine uh, can be addictive substances, both, mm-hmm. you know, and yet unafraid, he lifts those elements up and he says, these are the elements meant to draw you into me. Mm-hmm. This is my bread. This is the bread. Uh, this is my body. Take, eat, and remember, like, this is the wine. This yeah. is my blood. Take and drink. He uses those very earthy elements to say, this is the connection point with me. Do it as a connection point with me. Uh, realize that this is why we call this a sacrament, because it is the conduit for God's grace in our lives. And, and I've experienced that so much. You know, the thing that was once my poison, I've said this before, but the thing that was once my poison, wine, alcohol, has become my salvation. Hmm. And uh, it's, it's the most uh, asinine, backwards, upside-down thing that, uh, you know, somebody who struggled with addiction to alcohol would then say that this alcoholic thing is, is his salvation, but it is absolutely the truth for me. Yeah. I I mean, I, I get how that's That sounds crazy. It it also sounds so right to me. (laughs) Of course, you know, like, of course, our, our, the thing that trips us up is the thing that saves us because how else would we be saved, you know, other than our own effort, uh, which is a tired and tried and true process. We, we all go there, but, um, you know, I, I was, I was, as you're saying that it just, it, it's remarkable to me that, that it really just to use the metaphor of waking up. It's like you can eat your cereal asleep. You can take the Eucharist asleep, or you can, 
eat your cereal awake. You can wake up and receive the Eucharist. And just, I know you've said this in so many different ways, but say it again, like what's the difference between living your life asleep and living your life having a series of waking ups, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the examined life. Yeah. I think a life unexamined is a life asleep. Mm-hmm. I think when you don't think about the ways you use food, the ways you drink wine, the ways you um, have sex, you know, with your spouse, even uh, the ways or you uh, study yeah. uh, the scriptures, even the ways you read books and use books, the ways you shop, when you don't examine those things, when you just um, allow them to be a potential for distraction and a potential painkiller. I think that is being asleep. Yeah. That is the sleeping life. It's 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 the awake life that that says I'm going to take a hard look at the ways I use all these things and I'm only going to use them to the extent that they help me love serve and reverence God. And this was Really, I mean, you know this. You walked through the spiritual exercises. In mm-hmm. fact, your director directed me through them. Yes. Um, so, uh, shout out to him, right? Awesome. Um, we love him. But, but the 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 idea in the principle and the foundation is that of Saint Ignatius is that this is this is what we're made to do to love, serve, and reverence him, and and to the extent that things don't um, enhance that, we have to cut them off. We have to get rid of them. Um, we have to say goodbye to them. And, and in that way, we're living the examined life. We're living the truly woke, woken, waking life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I think that's the difference is, is are we willing to do the hard work of living a life examined? Okay. I want to ask you a couple of questions being mindful of the time. Oh my gosh. Um, but to the person that is, maybe listening and could maybe identify two or three different attachments that might be called addictions. Uh, but they're at the place where it's like, okay, honestly, if I'm really honest and you're not going to judge me for being this honest, I can't imagine my life without that. So (laughs) how in the world am I supposed to even take, even if I feel like there's a part of me that wants to, um, you know, the, the principle and foundation, um, I, but I can't get over this, this fear. I I don't know how I'm going to do my life without that thing. Like, how would you interact with that person? Yeah. I mean, I think I would do it a lot like we did in the opening of the show with you. Yeah. Yeah. It's just to say, look, what does this do for you Mm -hmm. in its best iterations? What does it do for you? And in its worst iterations, what does it do for you? Mm -hmm. And always, 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 man, in the worst iterations, we get to see there is an underlying pain. Mm -hmm. So if you say, I can't imagine my life without alcohol, then the question is why? Yeah. What, what is, what is the negative? What is the, what is the worst iteration of your alcohol use uh, do? And what are you using it to try to cope with or cover up? Mm -hmm. And I think if we can get people um, you know, I, I was on a podcast with Annie Downs and Annie said this and I loved it. Her therapist says, it's not what you're doing. It's not the action. It's not the thing that you're doing that you'd rather not do. It's the thing underneath it. Yeah. I think a lot of times if we can stop focusing so much on the thing, man, I can't imagine living without alcohol. I can't imagine cutting back work. Okay. Well, let's not, 
let's ask what are we using that to cover up? What's the pain point? And then let's go and deal with the pain. Yeah. Uh, or as Annie's therapist says, you know, 18 minutes before you use the thing, let's go examine the anxiety or the stress or the pain point that's there. And what is that? Mm-hmm. If we deal with that, I think we can begin to really unwind the I can't imagine. We can begin to sort of forge a new imagination for what it would look like to live without that thing or to live with that thing in a way only that it loves, ser- brings us to love, serve, and reverence God. Okay, that is so helpful and so good. Um, and just so for those of you who are listening, Seth's book uh, is called The Book of Waking Up, Experiencing the Divine Love That Reorders a Life. And there's really five sections to it. And I want to ask you after I, I'm going to explain the, the just, I'm going to list the five questions that you ask, but then I'm going to ask you, Seth, to talk about why the format was so important to you because it's got a very unique format. Uh, so the first question, the first section is what is the problem? The next one is, what is the pain? The next one is, what is addiction really? And then, what is sobriety? And then lastly, how do we wake up in the sober way? Uh, and But within those is like a fascinating, almost Tao Te Ching structure of just, you know, numbered, ordered, very small sections. And I remember when you were even first writing this and you would send me different iterations and you'd (laughs) say, now the format's super important. So like open it up Mm -hmm. in a PDF, don't open it up like this way because I want you to read it like this. Why was that so important for you? Yeah, so um, one is the short, quirky answer is iconoclasm. Yeah. I'm so tired of 11 chapter books. Yes. Uh, part of it is my, my day job. You know, my day job is to, to help people. Um, part of my day job is to help people write their books and to help edit and to help coach them through the process. And I think part of it's just being tired of 11 chapter, you know, 3,500 word chapter books. Yeah. Um, but the other part of it is like, I think it's really important when we walk into this discussion of sobriety, of the true inner sobriety, um, maybe what we should, could, you and I would call Ignatian sobriety, is to really lead people through a very clear and very artful, I hope, um, artistic argument that connects and makes sense and builds one section on another and does it in a way that then leaves actual mental white space. The book has a ton of white space in it, Mm -hmm. but actual mental white space to stop and to think and to allow the mind to sort of ruminate and and stew on what's just uh, been presented. And so I think there's a piece of it for me that, you know, I want the book to have a lot of white space. I want people to write in the white space. I had a woman send me a photo that she drew in the white space, just an artistic sort of outflow of what she was reading. It was really cool. Um, and so for me, the, the format was super important because I don't want people to just think that you could just pick it up and breeze uh, you know, sort of casually read over the chapters like we do so many books in oh, this yeah. 
of split attention. Um, I wanted people to take the time chunk by chunk, like they're eating a meal, a slow meal um, with the book. And so for me, I just wanted to craft it that way. And and the best representation that I, I could remember seeing that was like that was Stephen Pressfield's The War of Art. Yeah. Um, and so the format is, it's different than, than Pressfield's, but it has that kind of Pressfieldian feel to it where um, it's a slow argument that sort of builds on itself one chunk at a time and has just a ton of white space. Yeah, it really does. I and mean, I'm looking at it right now. So there's, there's 163, I don't know what you would call it, like paragraphs, sections, chapters, whatever you want to call it. And there's different parts. Yeah. Sections, yeah. Sections, yeah. And there is a ton of white space. There's just so much room for people to, and I think you're right. That's an invitation to stop and say, okay, that's, I probably just read, you know, 150 words, but there's yeah. a lot in there and I need to stop, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm looking at 100 right now, the nexus between pain and gin, <laughs> which yeah. I mean, if you weren't such a good writer, you know, maybe you'd go like, oh, how do you come up with titles even for 163 sections, but you do. And it they're so, so good. Um, yeah. On yeah. And those titles. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Those, those, those titles function as sort of, I, I mean, I think my hope is that as you read this book, that there, that there's a, it's a little you know, lighter than coming clean, you know, no one ever called coming clean, the feel good beach read of 2015. <laughs> it was so dark. And in fact, I had to go uh, read it for um, the, the audio, the audio book, and we, which we just released the yeah. audio book of my first book and had to read it. And as I was reading it uh, in Minnesota, I mean, there were places where I was crying and I couldn't get through the passages because it was so dark. Dude, that was such a dark season. Yeah. Um, and my hope with, with the book of waking up was to provide something that was a little bit happier, snarkier. Um, I think you may have picked up on some of the footnotes are, are mm -hmm. full of snark and some mm -hmm. of my favorite music and some of my favorite books. And I just, I wanted to make this an invitation to be wholly creative, wholly alive, wholly who I am and to let the reader experience what that means too. And part of that was done through the creation of these titles some of which are terribly snarky in fact my editor made me pull uh pull some of it back oh i want to read one short one 37 pain the pyro uh so this is literally you guys this is just a short paragraph but it's just it's an example of the kind of writing seth does uh and um and what's so delightful about this book so uh, john ray was right the problem of pain is that it's pain it hurts no matter how much you pretend otherwise. You can try your best to ignore it or to explain it away or to distract yourself from it, but nerves are real things. Once lit, they're as autonomous as the short fuses of a firecracker. They do what they were created to do. They spit sparks, carry a fire to the brain, explode in a rush of chemicals. Pain is a pyromaniac. No! Ah! that's good man that's just fucking good stuff <laughs> thanks do you have to beep that i never know how this works on podcasts anymore you know i don't beep them out i just don't. love it you know i just i'm past <laughs> that it's too much effort yeah too much um, effort okay a couple more questions seth gosh um one section early yeah, on page 33, the it's titled, uh, I ain't your guru. 
<laughs> yeah. So if you're not our guru, who are you? Man, I hope I'm your friend. Yeah. I'm so tired of gurus. And listen, I, I, I read their books. Right now, I have a book in my backpack by Gretchen Rubin. What is the name of this book? Is this, is this the right one? Yeah. Better Than Before. Uh, it's great. It's a great book about habit formation. You know, she occupies this sort of modern guru space. I, I, I read those guys. I, I read Sinek. I read Ferris. You know, I read these people too. I, I'm not, sure. you know, exempt from wanting a good guru, um, particularly in the space of habit formation. But I, I just don't want to be that. I don't, that's not what I am. It's not who God made me to be. God made me to be. Um, the type of person who likes a good library and who wants to help you curate your library. You know, that's all I want to do. I want to help give you the tools. I want to help curate your library. I want to come to your house and say, hey, look, these are the six or seven or eight books that you need on addiction. They'll tell you everything you need to know. Let's sit down and talk about them over a cup of coffee. Um, you know, that, that's what I want to be. That's what I want this, uh, book to serve as, is a functional gateway to f- friendship. And, and maybe not even with me, but one of the things that I've said about this book is, is I really want the reader to own it, mm-hmm. right? I want them to walk away from this book feeling like they know this material. They have lived this material. They're going to live into this material so much that they're going to invite three to five friends to then go back through it with them to work it out together to live it out together to learn into it together and so that when that group is over each of those people will go out and invite three to five more people and so forth and so on because they've internalized this message from their friend and they have become the friend um and so for me for this book the the whole hope is that you would find friendship with me in this way of inner sobriety, that you would spread the friendship of inner sobriety, and that somehow in this world that is increasingly divided and, and increasingly unfriendly and increasingly addictive, um, that we could find a better, friendlier way forward. That's my hope. Oh, that's good. That's good. Well, and I think, um, I think your book, this book, um, depending on people's desire, right? Uh, I think it could be incredibly freeing for a group of people, uh, two or three people to just sit with it for like a year, you know, cause it's, mm-hmm. it's, but you're right. Like it, it is, um, you know, coming clean. I, it was, um, a 90 days of darkness for sure. And this yeah. book it is snarkier. It is um, more digestible in a certain way. And um, it packs so much punch that I think, you know, you're right. This one's not going to be a, you know, just bring it to the pool and speed through it either. And you didn't design it to be that way. Um, It's a gorgeous book though. The writing is gorgeous and your life just bleeds through it. It's so good. Um, The process of this one must have been um, I don't know if I want to say painful. What, what, what word would you use to describe the process of writing this one? Complete. Oh, wow. I walked away from the coffee shop. I, so it, it, there's a lot about this book that just uh, so perfect. Um, I, I wrote most of it sitting next to, um, 
I don't think it would be, I don't think this is overstepping to say an, an atheist slash agnostic friend um, who is brilliant in her own right and who very graciously talked through the project with me from beginning to end. So there was a piece of like her saying, make sure you're being honest, you know, don't, yeah. don't put the veneer on it. Um, I walked through it in the process of some really painful church transition. So I was experiencing the pain as I was writing it. I walked through it um, in the season with some uh, friends who really came beside me and, and also reminded me of the good things of sobriety. So um, I remember walking out of the coffee shop the day I put the last period on um, the last sentence and I called Amber and I said, if I never write another thing, I will be happy with wow. this. Wow. This is enough. I can stop. Hmm. Uh, now between, you know, the two of us and your audience, I don't, I don't want to stop. I love writing. Um, but if something happened and this book was it, I can say that my life work is, is done hmm. and it's in this book. So it feels very complete. Wow. Well, uh, Seth Haynes, the book is called the book of waking up, experiencing the divine love that reorders a life. And it is out now, so pick it up wherever you buy your books. Do you have any favorite place to uh, to send people to buy your book? Yeah, so um, I'm going to lead with uh, three physical stores. So my first, uh, there's a little independent bookstore in Fort Smith, Arkansas called Bookish. Uh, you can jump on their website, which I don't exactly remember. Um, I'll put it on the bookish. show notes, you guys. So. Yeah, good, good. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Bookish in Fort Smith is one. Um, Byron Borgman over at Hearts and Minds, um, which a lot of people uh, who may have gone to the Festival of Faith and Writing may know him. Um, he, he can get my book. So two independent bookstores, one more general market, one a little bit uh, that dabbles in the faith-based world a little bit more. Then obviously Barnes & Noble is stocking it. I love uh, brick and mortar. So if you can get to a Barnes & Noble, the reason I love brick and mortar so much, so why I, I say bookish and hearts and minds and Barnes & Noble, I love uh, brick and mortar because you go in there to buy my book and then you'll discover something amazing while you're there. It's yeah. The discoverability of shopping in a physical bookstore is just it's where we need to all be doing our shopping <laughs> for good. books. Yeah, no, um, I agree. But then obviously if, if you're not where you can get to a bookish or a hearts and minds or Barnes and Noble, uh, feel free to hit the folks up at Amazon. They, they have them, uh, in stock. So, um, those are my, my go-tos right there. All right. I'm going to put those three on the show notes. So just steveweens.com slash show notes, search for Seth Haynes and you'll find it. And, um, just again, it was bookish. That's in Fort Smith, Arkansas. Mm -hmm. Hearts and Minds, uh, and is that Grand Rapids or where is that? It's somewhere in Pennsylvania, oh, okay. um, and I've been told it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. So that makes yeah. it even more cool. Uh, and then, of course, Barnes and Noble. So, um, and then, last question, Seth, if if you were to send, if people wanted to find out more about you, follow you, follow your work, where do you send people? SethHaines.com. They can also connect with me on Twitter or Instagram uh, at Seth Haynes, both places. Um, and then I've also, uh, this might interest your readers too, I've opened up a small Facebook group for discussion, all things the Book of Waking Up. So whether it's addiction or attachment or the writing craft or whatever it is, 
there's a small Facebook group and uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love, love it. If some of your uh, listeners jumped in there and joined us. And do they just search for the book of waking up on Facebook and then they request to be added? How does that work? No, it's private. So what I'll do is uh, invite you and give you the link and then you'll be good to go. All right. So connect with uh, <laughs> Seth. All right. I don't know what that little sing song right. thing was. That, was. that was like some, somewhere between Mr. Rogers and Matthew McConaughey. Oh, you know what that was? It was just a mindless. That was like the, that was like the dinger, the, like the timer that, that goes off that says, okay, now I'm done with this and I need to move on. Uh, which is, it's obnoxious just to be, to be honest. Love it. Love it. So sethings.com it's H A I N E S sethings.com. And then I'll put that on the show notes and your Twitter and Instagram handles on show notes on the show notes as well. Uh, love it. Seth, I just love you, man. And, um, I love talking to you. I am going to find a way to get to Arkansas. I just have to, you know, I have a sabbatical coming up this summer. Oh, um, come and on. so that could be, I, I'm trying to plan out what travel I'm going to be traveling some, not like all the time, but maybe Arkansas has to be part of my, my, my path. Right. I think you should make it happen. I can There's John my, Ray kind of finally. Song. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, you should make it happen. I think was, you should make it happen. <laughs> Yours was way too forced. Mine was so clean and like, uh, you know, like practiced. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. All right. Well, we so started I'll, with. So I'll see, you this, I'll see you this summer. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I just, we just need to make it happen. I need to meet Amber. I need to meet John Ray. Uh, maybe we can even wrangle a couple other hooligans into uh the crowd but anyway thanks man i really appreciate your time love your love your work seth and uh thanks for coming on yeah thanks for having me i really appreciate it hey friends thanks so much for listening to this good word if you love this podcast there's three ways that you can support my work one is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash thisgoodword. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books, and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook, uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together. <laughs>